I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. There are many ways in which organizations share their message and build a brand. One of them is through social media and social networking. Lauren Driver, senior client partner at Twitter, explained the difference between social media and social networking. We talked about how digital media strategies are built by leveraging these tools. Lauren also explained her workflow for working with clients and partners in this space. Lauren Driver, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thanks so much for having me. You've been working in communications for over a decade across different roles in tech companies. Most recently, you are at Twitter and you worked in social media and social networking. I want to begin first by understanding the difference between social media and social networking. Is there even a difference? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when we look at social media, it's really referring to basically the means of interactions among people. So, you know, how they're creating, sharing or exchanging information and ideas, you know, in these online communities and networks. So I think if you are talking about social networking, it's almost a subcategory or part of that, of how people are using social media to network, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. There are also areas within working in social media and digital media, like crafting strategies as part of a business, crafting digital media strategies. What is the main idea behind this? Yeah, digital media strategy is is very important typically to businesses. The way you can think about it, it is kind of a series of actions that can help you achieve your company goals. And you want to be careful of how you're selecting those marketing channels. So we can talk more about that. But in general, you want to look at paid, earned, and owned media as part of your overarching digital media strategy. And social media is is a bucket within that. You mentioned selecting marketing channels. What are examples of different channels that a company can choose? Yeah, I think it goes back again to kind of the paid, earned, and owned aspect of the media, but it can span from anything from TV advertising to social media to email marketing to online display to search advertising. There's a bunch of different elements you can choose from. And so the best way to go about it is ultimately defining your goals as an organization and figuring out what the best channels are to achieve that goal. So you might be doing a lot of test and learns around, let's take you know TV versus social as an example, um, to understand the cost implications of buying that media and then the return that you're getting for each of those media types. And so from there, you might assess and say, okay, we need to optimize more money towards TV based on the results or for social based on the results. You mentioned three characteristics, the paid, the earn, and the own. Can you explain a bit what each of this means? Sure. So paid media is going to be your advertising dollars and how you use kind of that marketing budget through advertising. So again, some examples of those are TV or search budget or social media. The earned piece of it is really thinking about the public relations aspect of it and how you're getting your story out there, you know, via reporters and stories and that sort of thing. 
And then the owned media is really your owned channels that you have access to. So that can be things like your website, you know, maybe your email uh, CRM list, and even, you know, lists that you develop based on people coming to your website. And you've worked mostly on digital media strategies within companies. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about have your own personal brand, your own digital media. Do you think it's the way we approach the strategy is different for a company versus an individual? For the most part, it should be the same. You would still want to align on goals and kind of determine which strategies work best for the individual versus the company. I think where you might see differentiation is there's going to be different you know, budgets, as an example, for a company versus an individual. So it might be more efficient to focus your dollars and your strategy on social, which you can typically get a lot more bang for your buck at times for an individual versus a company. Another area that you have experiences is in working in sales and with clients and partners within tech companies. What are some of the ways in which you can uh, approach a potential new client? Um, the way I think about working with a potential new client is honestly just looking to make sure that they see us as a true partner as opposed to just a vendor. So it takes a lot of trust to get to that point, you know, especially with a new client. So thinking about taking in information at the beginning and listening to them about what their goals are, what's working and what's not working for them, so that then you can develop a strategy that is more in line with, you know, those goals that they have. So we want to be seen, you know, at Twitter as an example as more of a strategic partner and, and an agency almost that the brands work with. So I think taking a step back and understanding the business objectives and listening to the client again about, you know, what's working and what's not working will set you up for more success. You mentioned how building trust is one of the important factors. In your opinion, what are other characteristics of a good relationship between a company and its clients? I think just again, like trust being that understanding the business. So, you know, at Twitter, as an example, like we want to ensure we are putting our best foot forward when it comes to ideas that align exactly with the business objectives. We don't want to be out there pitching, you know, something just to pitch it that may not make sense for the brand. So I think that partnership in that sense is, you know, a characteristic, again, built on that trust. What are some examples of things that can go wrong when working with a client? I think it goes back to yeah, understanding the background and goals of the campaign from the brand directly. So if you're starting out a partnership and you're, you don't have that background, you know, there's ways that you might be going down the wrong path in that sense. So you really want to partner earlier on in, in the planning process to ensure your campaign ideas are aligning with the brand goals and ultimately driving their business results. And so if you're lacking that background and context from the beginning, there's ways that that can be not the best. When you're working with clients or pretty much anyone else within a company, issues emerge, conflict emerge. What is your experience in how to manage and solve conflict between individuals, either between a client and people within the company or something similar? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I really start with listening. So listening to the other person or the client 
and understanding, you know, what the concern or the issue is that needs to be solved. And then from there, just being honest and direct is what's really worked for me in the past. I think it's under important to understand where there's other persons coming from and then start to address any concerns and get to an ultimate solution that feels right for both parties. You're currently senior client partner at Twitter. Can you explain what the client partner role consists of? Sure. Ultimately, I lead the relationship for Twitter with one of our largest CPG or consumer packaged goods advertisers. So I am their day-to-day contact at Twitter, working across all of the brands to figure out how Twitter best plays a role in their marketing. So as an example, when brands come to launch a new product, we work closely at Twitter on figuring out the best way to do that to ultimately get people in store to buy that product. And do you interact with various teams within the company, such as product teams or engineers as part of this effort? I do. So I have the visibility into the product and engineering team and the way that typically I work with them is providing them advertiser feedback. So if one of my clients would like to see something on the roadmap or you know has a suggestion for a way to make a product better, I'm able to kind of go back to the team internally and say, hey, this is direct from your our client. And ultimately that's, you know, who we should be reporting to at the end of the day. And so it's great to be able to have kind of that bridge to go back to the internal teams. Throughout your career and your time working with partners and clients. What would you say are some of the skills that you have developed from this experience? Especially at Twitter, I think that strategic thinking and planning ahead is key. So you have to remember the ultimate goal of a brand manager, like on the client side, is to sell more of their product. And so when you're thinking about it from a Twitter perspective and pitching ideas focused on social media, one, you have to remember that Twitter is a small, small percentage of the media that they think about. So how can we provide ideas that are exciting, but will also still drive people in store to purchase or consider purchasing the product, which goes back to the brand manager's ultimate goal. When I was researching for this interview, I came across some comments of your former colleagues. One that I found really interesting was how they're describing how you have a really good ability to manage multiple projects at the same time and don't really let any of the projects delay or something. (laughs) This is great. So I wanted to ask you, how do you approach this? Because I've talked to other people about it. There come situations where you get handed another project and it needs to get done. Do you have some thoughts around managing multiple projects? Yeah, I think it comes back to time management and then prioritization. So those are kind of the two key elements for me. So even tactically speaking, like I will schedule time on my calendar to work on and finish a project in priority order before moving to the next. Because I think what can happen is people feel overwhelmed that they have a lot going on at the same time and they do, you know, pieces of one project and then move to pieces of another project. But that doesn't allow for you to finish one and move on to the next. So I think, you know, scheduling time on my calendar to carve out, I'm going to finish this actual project in this time has really helped me to be able to, you know, handle multiple projects at the same time. Is there also uh, some thoughts in terms of the quality of the deliverable? Because I know I've heard conversations of people where they're saying, I'm a perfectionist. So for me, it doesn't really look like done, but then 
my teammate sees it and they're like, this is great already. Do you also think about that when you're working on deliverables and projects? Absolutely. I mean, I know I personally have like a very high standard of work and deliverables that I'm going to send to a client. So if it is not in a place that I feel like will have a positive reaction from the client, like I'm not going to send it. And, you know, I've had to go through multiple iterations. Maybe it's, you know, a different part, part of the organization that's putting something together. At the end of the day, I am the one that is interacting and owning this client. And so anything I put in front of them ultimately comes back to me, even if I didn't put it together. So I will take a step back and start over on, you know, a deliverable or edit it, whatever it may be to ensure the same level of quality of work every single time, because the clients come to expect that from our team. And I don't want to change that perception just because, you know, we're in a time crunch or something like that. So it sounds like you can start having a series of guidelines of to determine the quality of the deliverable. But also what I thought was really important was thinking about the client and just putting yourself in their shoes. And are they going to find this deliverable useful? Because it could be that you're at a stage where the answer is yes, but your personal opinion could be, I can still improve this deliverable, but it could already, based on the parameters of the client, be meeting up the standards according to them. Yeah, that's right. And what I really push my team on too is understanding what questions are going to come out of this deliverable and how can we answer those in advance of even sending that, right? So if we're sending something and we know that there's going to be immediate questions about it, I want to address that in the deliverable so that the client doesn't have any questions and they're very clear on what, you know, the campaign idea is or what the next step should be or whatever it might be that we're proposing. Does a role as a client partner involve the sales team or is it related to the sales domain? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially I am on the sales and marketing team for Twitter. So under that sales organization, I lead, you know, the one of the largest CPG companies relationship. So I am on the sales team. Got it. Before we finish, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your experience in sports, in particular in golf. You played while you were in college at the University of Texas in Austin. Mm -hmm. What are some skills that you learned by playing golf that you found are useful in, in other domains, maybe in your day-to-day -day job or something else? Yeah, golf's a really interesting sport because it's an individual and team sport. And I'm not sure, you know, everyone knows that because if you watch professional golf, it it is an individual sport in that sense. But in college, you're competing to do your best as an individual, but that directly affects the team's results as well. So you have a team of five and then they take the top four scores out of those five and that's your team score as well. So it's really important that, you know, you're not only doing the best for yourself, but you're doing the best for your team as well. And I think similarly, that's, you know, how a sales team works for the most part. So we're all working towards a common goal, but we also want to show our own skills and how we're differentiating, you know, from the pack to ultimately drive more revenue for the company. You're currently a member of the committee of the Millennial Task Force to attract people from younger generations into the sport, into golf. 
What are examples of things that you do to help with this effort? Sure. Yeah. I'm on the Millennial Task Force with the World Golf Foundation. And things that we're doing, we're really trying to work on developing new ideas and best practices for golf courses to entice a younger audience. So as an example, allowing people to play music on their golf cart or even providing music for them can be key to attracting you know, a younger demographic. Another example might be offering them different ways to play. And what I mean by that is You don't have to pay for just 18 holes. You could pay for nine or 12 or six or whatever you have time for, as opposed to, you know, ensuring they have four plus hours to dedicate of their day to, you know, playing a full round of golf. So we're always brainstorming with different golf courses on, you know, how they can educate, you know, and bring in a younger consumer. In your opinion, do you think some of the challenges that you explore with this effort are similar to the efforts to attract minorities to fields like science, technology, engineering, and math? I do, actually. If we take a step back, like I can talk about some of the challenges in golf, and then I can talk, you know, to the similarities. So what we see with golf is that there's a stereotype of golf being only for an older male And that's, you know, what the sport has been known for in the past. Like if you've ever heard of what golf stands for, it stands for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. So there's this precedent that golf is only for men and this older demographic. So that's a big challenge for us of breaking that stereotype. And I think another challenge that, you know, comes with that is educating people on the game, which includes a lot of rules. So it's not you know, an easy game where you can just walk up and, and learn it very quickly. So we're trying to make educational videos for a younger audience and also trying to highlight celebrities who may not be professional golfers that still play the sport to kind of show the younger audience that it can be a cool thing to do. Steph Curry is actually a really great example of that. You know, he plays basketball, but he is a fantastic golfer and he loves to do that on the side. And, you know, he's a younger person. So I think when looking at the challenges and attracting minorities to to fields like STEM, there's a lot of similarities. So I think one, you know, there's typically stereotypes for those types of fields, which is one thing that's very similar. And then secondly, education is also key. We want to ensure that the people that are hiring for those roles are doing the research and being provided a diverse group of candidates, but also too, that the candidates feel welcome into this space and understand that you know, there is a space for them in these fields. Exactly. And I guess in addition to the, the stereotypes that you mentioned where it's characterized by all male people playing this game, me personally, I would also think it's expensive or you need to be rich to get involved in this game. That's right. So we have a full list that we work off of, you know, of kind of these, you know, I guess constant complaints isn't the right word, but constant trends that seem to pop up around the game of golf and expensive is absolutely one of those, especially because you're not only paying to play at a course and, you know, potentially have a cart, but, you know, beginning have to buy a set of clubs, which is quite pricey. And even the used clubs can be that way as well. So that's, you're right. That's another challenge that we kind of deal with as well. And this is about making sure the resources are accessible you know, to other folks, which is also something we see in the tech industry. I know prices have gone down for gadgets and things like that, but even then there's people that cannot afford, you know, a computer, but they can find other ways of getting access to one. That's right. Yep. 
before we finish, one last question that I would like to ask you that I like asking guests on the show is, do you have advice in general for young professionals? It can be you know, career-related or related to life. What would you say to young professionals? I think some of the best advice I've been given is don't be afraid to ask because you never know what's possible. And a specific example comes to mind for me at Twitter. Being in sales, you know, I want to differentiate myself and also provide the best quality for my clients. And I don't really want to follow a template. And so if I am able to ask what's possible, if I have an idea, you know, Twitter is really great about supporting that. And, you know, as an example, I was able to get marketing money internally to build a case study video for a client that didn't have those resources internally. And ultimately what that's turned out to be is that that client is able to take that video and share it with, you know, their shopper marketing team, their leadership, other parts of the organization. And so if you think outside the box and don't be afraid to ask, you never know what's possible. So I think that would be something I would say to, you know, the younger industry. That's great advice. Well, Lauren, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 